Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. We're running a poll. Should the U.S. Second Amendment on the right to bear arms be repealed? A, yes. B, no. You can vote on my Twitter, on YouTube, on my Telegram, t.me forward slash George Galloway, or on the YouTube community poll. Many thousands have already voted, and the result is not perhaps what you would imagine, given the regular, certainly weekly, oftentimes daily, toll of mass murder that takes place in the United States. The question of banning weapons is otios, in my opinion. It cannot be done. There are more illegal weapons in the United States than there are legal, and there are a hundred million legal arms, maybe more than that. That statistic may be out of date. So disarming Americans is practically impossible in any case. I've got to tell you, if I was voting in this poll, I'd be voting no. If I lived in a country like the United States, as violent, as dysfunctional, as quite frankly horrific, divided across multiple axes from top to bottom, with a tyrannical government, with a tyrannical bipartisan Congress, I wouldn't give up my weapon either. But you can have your say. You can call the show even if you want to speak volubly about that. Of course, there was plenty of weapons around in 1945 on this day and indeed on the preceding ones. The Red Army lost hundreds of thousands of casualties just in the battle for Berlin itself. But they were determined not just to crush Nazi Germany, not just to secure its capitulation, but to secure its entire destruction because that fascist tyranny had visited almost a hundred million casualties on the world. Unconditional surrender and the capture or killing of the Nazi hierarchy was the minimum requirement for the invading Red Army. I'm reading the epic work, I wish I'd brought it to show you, of my late and great friend and former parliamentary colleague, Alan Clark, simply titled Barbarossa. Alan used to quite effortlessly turn out these epic works of extraordinary scholarship, which shone a light onto conflict so bright that you could almost see the blood seeping into the frozen ground in the case of Barbarossa. I wrote another great book called Donkeys uh, about the lions that were led by donkeys in the trenches of the First World War. I commend both to you. 
But because I'm reading it and because I have just been in Germany, I am acutely conscious of the significance of these few days in May. You'll recall the epic picture of the banner of victory being draped over the destroyed Reichstag. I visited it nowadays called the Bundestag just a day or two ago. Just two blocks from there, Hitler was still alive. His Hitler youth and his most extreme SS zealots were holding out, still fighting, gun to gun, knife to knife, teeth to teeth with the invading Russian army. This regime, which had cost the lives of 26 million Russian, 26 million Russian people, 20 million Chinese people through its alliance with Japanese fascism, the people who died in Africa from the forces of Italian fascism, this axis of evil had to be crushed, but nobody could crush it except the Red Army. The Russians were the only people who could have destroyed this bestial tyranny and dictatorship. And just think about this. It is therefore the case that if not for the Russians, the entire world might still be under the jackboot of fascism. Just think about that. Of course, no Jew would be left alive in the world, probably no Slav either, no disabled person, no homosexual person, no communist, no socialist, no trade unionist, no dissident would have been permitted to live outside the concentration camps, maybe even outside the gas chamber. That's an unrepayable, irredeemable debt that humanity owes to the Russian people. And yet how quickly it was all forgotten, how quickly Western media and propaganda fixed the Russians who saved us from fascism, fixed them as the next enemy. And how many decades, all the decades of my young life, in fact, until 1990, it was an anti-Soviet demon against which we were ranged. Since 1990, despite the brief interregnum of Russia lying drunk on the floor and having its pockets picked by globalized capitalism and the buzzards, the vultures, who sought to feast upon its great national treasures, both industrial and mineral, that brief interregnum was ended on this day 23 years ago when Vladimir Putin became the president of Russia for the first time. They hate Vladimir Putin in the way that they did not hate the drunkard Boris Yeltsin. And the reason, if you think about it, is obvious. Unfortunately, far too many people never think about it. Because Putin lifted Russia off the floor, dried it out, dusted it down, put it back on its feet, put it back to work, banned the vodka, restricted the drunken stupor into which so many Russians had fallen 
at the end of the communist period and in that aforementioned interregnum. Rebuilt its strength, rebuilt its international prestige, so that all roads lead to Moscow now, including the roads from Beijing, the world's greatest industrial power, soon to be the world's greatest economy. Russia is now at the heart of the world island, the Eurasian heartland, which is carrying already all before it in economic, military, and political developments. That's why they hate Vladimir Putin. That's why they invent propaganda stories about him, as outlandish as the bayoneting of babies and the Belgian nuns in the propaganda of the First World War, as untrue as the Viagra given out by Gaddafi to Libyan forces so that they could rape women using rape as a weapon of war, as fictitious as the Iraqis unplugging babies from incubators in the hospitals of Kuwait and carrying the incubators back home to Iraq. A litany of more than a century of lying has been the hallmark of Western media in its servile service to the war machine, to the dictates of the big powers in our countries. That's why they tell you Putin's had a heart attack, a brain hemorrhage, why he's got cancer in every available organ, why he's got a body double, why he might be even dead. That's why they tell you that, because they hate him and they fear him. They hate him because he has put Russia back where it belongs as a great European and Asiatic society, and because they realize that he is winning. We'll be talking more. I've got a short film to show you about my time in Berlin. We'll talk more about that later. I want to turn to the coronation that took place in London yesterday. Now look, there's, I'm in second place to nobody when it comes to acknowledging the brilliance of the British in these great state occasions. Few, if any, can match our taste for the big day. Few can match the resplendence of our surroundings, the cityscape of our capital city, at least in a square mile or so around Westminster, Buckingham Palace the Mal, and so on. I'm one of the very few people on the left that enjoys the Edinburgh military tattoo. I like pomp and circumstance, even if I don't like the cause to which it is devoted. So I have no wish to rain on the King's Parade that took place yesterday. I have no wish to laugh at the millions of my compatriots who thoroughly enjoyed the day. Those that were there and those that watched on television. I understand their feelings and heaven knows it has been a long time since we have had anything at all to feel happy about as a country, as a people. But I cannot forswear to comment on the venality of the individual for whom all this was yesterday done. 
the venality of this adulterous tax dodger, this man who almost literally drove Princess Diana to her death in a Paris underpass, this man who conducted an illicit affair not only throughout his own marriage, but also through her own marriage, are now the king and queen of Britain. And most particularly for the purposes of this monologue, he is the head of the Church of England. Now, I'm not going to turn this into a religious war, limited though my admiration for the Church of England is, I'm not going to turn this into a diatribe against a church founded on the balls of Henry VIII to facilitate his adultery. I'm not going to talk about the Church of England, the Anglican Communion with the swinging women vicars and the silk knickers on many a priest. I'm not going to talk about any of that, but I'm bound to make reference to an extraordinary thing that happened to me this afternoon. I caught out one of those swinging priests, Father Calvin Robinson, something of a figure on GB News, something of a figure on Twitter. I had long followed him, quite often agreed with him, regularly retweeted him, but I caught him out on that most ancient of vices, hypocrisy, and drew attention to it in a sharp, crisp rejoinder. Robinson then made a very big mistake of accusing me of a lack of erudition. Now, I may not have your fancy, expensive education, Father, but I am not lacking in erudition, and there are not many people who will watch this, who will be in any doubt about that. You couldn't stand the heat, Father, so you blocked me on Twitter and then accused me of mocking God. Me mocking God. Nobody in the entire United Kingdom speaks about God to more people almost every week than me, and I certainly include your minuscule audience. I wasn't mocking God, Father. I was mocking you. Robinson, in terms, to please the GB News crowd and the anti-globalist people to whom he's normally preaching, of accusing the now King Charles anointed of being a scoundrel. And that had the benefit of being true. Father Robinson, drew attention uh, to his unsavory friends, and that is also undeniably true, from Jimmy Savile to Klaus Schwab, and every other Istandism, every other faddist, every other net zero denizen, every other climate change hoaxer, every other compulsory vaxxer, and all the rest. That is indeed King Charles. And Father Robinson opened with that. But he went on in the same tweet to say, but long may he reign over us. We don't get, he said, to pick our kings, which is, of course, precisely the point. Actually, we're lucky because it could well have been King Andrew 
anointed by a two-girl Thai massage yesterday in Westminster Abbey. We don't get to pick our kings so implicitly to God. Father Robinson said that he wished that God would allow, facilitate this man he just denounced as a scoundrel to rule over us for long. That's called hypocrisy, you see. It's called trying to ride two horses at the same time. If the first part is true, the second part cannot be true. And as for the later, once I'd been blocked, allegation that I was mocking God, let me make this point to you, Father Robinson. Jesus would have laughed at your lack of intellectuality, your lack of logic, your lack of theology, because people who believe in God don't just have a right to reject unjust kings. They have a duty, a responsibility to reject unjust kings, kings who will visit misery upon their people. And the only way to do that is to declare solemnly that this man is an illegitimate king. He's illegitimate on multiple levels that I don't have time to adumbrate. He's illegitimate because there is no commandment he has not regularly broken with not a cent of penitence about it. He's illegitimate because he does not wish the best for those that he rules over, whether short or long. He is illegitimate because of his personal conduct. He is illegitimate as the head of a church, even one formed on the balls of Henry VIII. There is much more I could say, but I note that I'm running out of time. And so I wish only to return to the first words that I spoke. In the United States of America, for whom my heart bleeds, the great people of America, are in the midst of a social, societal, cultural collapse. The seven people who were murdered just before I came on air in Texas followed eight people who were murdered there yesterday by a gunman with an automatic weapon. No day goes by without mass, internal, civil violence amongst the Americans. No neighborhood, no street, sometimes no tenement block, maybe even no house is free from the multiple vices that afflict American society. I genuinely mean my heart goes out to them. I have no wish to see the American people suffer. I wish with all my heart that the people of America can fix their society. But what I will never accept or even understand is how people who live in societies that are not yet at least like that, once begs this country of the United States of America to be their leader, to be their father, to give them orders, which they then faithfully carry out, even if those orders are so self-harming that no one can walk in any capital city in Europe today 
and I've been in multiple capital cities in Europe over these last few weeks. They're all falling. Paris is falling. London has fallen. Berlin has fallen. These societies are rapidly going to the dogs in order to carry out aggressive military, economic, and political warfare against the two most successful countries and societies in the world today. As the Americans would say, go figure. Go figure, indeed. Fasten your seatbelts. This is the mother of all talk shows. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. My favorite scholar, a man who could never be accused of a lack of erudition, is Professor George Samuli, author of Bombs for Peace, NATO's Humanitarian War on Yugoslavia, who joins me now from Hungary. Dr. George, uh, welcome back to the show. Can I begin with the rather uh, extraordinary story uh, yesterday, yet another journalist writer uh, was blown up uh, by the Ukrainian uh, security services. Gonzalo Lira, frequent contributor to the show, was taken at gunpoint. Another journalist now behind bars, if not worse, uh, at the hands of the Ukrainian security. One might uh, put these things down to rogue elements, except Budanov, uh, the head of uh, Ukrainian security, was very clear with us in a statement that he made today. He said they were going to kill Russians and their propagandists anywhere in the world. In other words, placing the world on notice that a wave of international terrorism is on its way to them. Of course, if people are lucky, it will only be the Russian propagandist who's blown up. Uh, But if they are unlucky, well, it could be any of us who is blown up. Uh, This a sign of strength or a sign of weakness? A harbinger of things to come or just the death throes of the Kiev regime? I think it's a sign of a terrorist uh, regime. Um, This regime that is in power in Kiev, it came to power uh, via an illegal coup. It has uh, conducted itself entirely by uh, violence, by terrorism directed at civilians uh, in the Donbass. And it's now continuing in the same uh, manner 
uh, now targeting uh, civilians. We've already had Daria Dugina, a young woman, murdered. We had a, a blogger uh, murdered in a St. Petersburg cafe, and now an attempt on the life of a writer. Uh, but Russia really has to accept that this is not a war, this is not special military operations, this isn't a war about the Donbass, it is a war directed at that regime in Kiev. And it has to think in terms of how would the United States have acted if there were such a terrorist regime in Mexico City that came to power via an illegal coup that was being armed to the teeth by Russia or China and was continually spewing hatred against the United States. Well, we know the answer. The United States would have invaded Mexico a long time ago. It would have gone straight into Mexico City. It would have kidnapped uh, the uh, president, would have taken him to uh, the United States, imprisoned him in a federal penitentiary, and then he would have put him on trial in due course for war crimes, crimes against humanity, for terrorism, and so on. This is clearly what Russia needs to do. It needs to draw up a bill of indictment against Zelensky, his immediate advisors, against uh, Poroshenko, uh, you know, who, who was in power after 2014, and do the same thing. I mean, it, it's it, it's a it, this is a regime change operation. That's the only way this war can come to an end. Um, fighting it out in Bakhmut and you know going trench by trench that doesn't really cut it. It has to be directed at that terrorist regime in Kiev. Russia certainly showed a great deal of forbearance. Uh, in former times, that forbearance would definitely not have been shown as someone, as I said in my introduction, who was uh, exactly where the rubble was in the Führer bunker, now a car park. Uh, I know for sure that uh, the kind of things that are happening now would never have been tolerated. The bulldozing of uh, Soviet Red Army war graves, for example. Uh, indeed, uh, the desecration in Germany yesterday of 400 uh, Red Army graves, war graves. These are acts of war. The Polish uh, example, th this is an act of war. Uh, and there have been many, many such uh, examples. And uh, Donetsk is still being bombed, and civilians are still being killed there. Children in the alley of angels are still being murdered there. Um, why is Russia showing such forbearance? Well, I think the problem is that Russia seems, uh, unfortunately, too keen on winning arguments. Uh, somehow showing themselves to be the better party, you know, almost like, you know, Jesus Christ, you know, turning the other cheek. Um, they don't seem to realize it doesn't matter if you win an argument. It doesn't matter if you point to American hypocrisy or American double standards or that NATO lied here and NATO lied there. It doesn't matter. They know they're lying. The only thing that they will understand, what they say about Russia, they understand the language, of course. That's the only thing that NATO understands. And I think, you know, Russians often criticize the Soviet Union and, the, you know, there are things to criticize. You know, there's, you know the, there was a great terror, collectivization uh, and so on. But there was one thing that you have to admire about the Soviet Union. You didn't mess with them. You, they didn't joke around um, and they inspired terror. Uh, people were frightened of messing with the Soviet Union. Russia, unfortunately, now is the position where countries aren't frightened of it. You, uh, you listed the various things that 
these tiny Baltic states do that, you know, they desecrate uh, uh, wartime uh, monuments, uh, cemeteries. Uh, you have Poland seizing uh, diplomatic buildings, all without any repercussions. And that's the difference. I mean, with the Soviet Union, you didn't do that. You knew there would be repercussions. And unfortunately, you know, Russians still just want to win arguments and think that somehow it's all going to sort itself out. No, <laughs> the only way that you're going to change anything is by winning this war uh, in Ukraine and doing it in a, as expeditious a manner as possible. Well, as my good friend Robert Wyatt put it in a wonderful song, uh, Stalin wasn't stolen uh, when he crushed the beast of Berlin. Uh, and uh, and uh, I think it was Medvedev who said a week or so ago that those, who, those Germans who wish uh, the invasion of Russia should be prepared for our victory parade in Berlin. Uh, but I've got to say, uh, German public opinion, we'll see, uh, but German public opinion seems resolutely set on a course of confrontation, even though they're being told by their own government not to shower every day. Imagine a German not showering every day, the cleanest people on the earth until a year and a bit ago. Uh, the uh, Russian uh, decision that will soon at least have to be made is whether to whether it's bloodier to go on or to go or whether steeped in blood so far is it bloodier to go on or to go or as the Scottish play uh, put it. We've mentioned Stalin, who famously said that quantity is a quality, and. The Russians don't lack quantity, neither quantity of space nor quantity of uh, people. They mobilized hundreds of thousands of soldiers. Have they even arrived at the front? Are they being felt? What do you think the game plan is? Well, it's very hard to know because um, I think, you know, as, as you said, with uh, Stalin, that's the uh, law of military science. Uh, it's quantities that win. You need to throw in masses of manpower, masses of infantry, masses of firepower. That's how you win wars. And unfortunately, Russia did not commit the necessary uh, manpower and firepower to win this. I, I don't know what the Russians were thinking. Maybe they thought that there'd be some sort of a coup in uh, Kiev that would remove Zelensky. Maybe they thought that Zelensky would cave very quickly like Dubček caved in 1968. Um, it didn't happen. And it doesn't look like Russia at the moment has a plan B. Um, uh, what they're doing now in the Donbass just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense strategically. It doesn't really make sense morally. It's, it's contrary to their objectives. I mean, their objective is this is denazification. We have to crush uh, the Nazi regime, not, uh, you know, we have, we don't have a problem with the Ukrainian people. It's the Nazi regime. But at the moment, the Nazi regime is doing very nicely. It's Ukrainian people and Russian people, of course, who are dying in Bakhmut. And that's because, you know, it's very little hard to make any progress in the Donbass. I mean, you know, NATO has heavily fortified it. They've got trenches, they've got mines. They've been waiting for eight years uh, for this war. So it doesn't make sense to go on fighting there. What makes sense is to go for Kiev, to crush this regime, as I say, arrest Zelensky, put him on trial. Um, that's the way you uh, win this war. 
Um, the initial plan, if if it was that they could overthrow Zelensky by a coup and there wouldn't be any heavy fighting, that hasn't worked. So they need to, uh, you know, basically move to Plan B. And it's the re- the problem is that regime. It's not the Ukrainian people. Now, what about the uh, points I made uh, earlier, George, uh, Doctor George? The the it's it's evident a walk in the capital cities of European countries now makes plain at a glance, just look around you at how we have fallen. And this in the service of uh, a senile American president presiding over a country which could scarcely be more dysfunctional. Europeans, you're in one now, Uh, in the great capitals of Europe. Europeans are an ancient civilizational force with very high levels of very good quality education and so on. How did it come to this? Well, I think that uh, we have in throughout Europe a kind of bought and paid for elite. Uh, These are people who have been brought uh, along through American money, through the patronage of uh, the World Economic Forum, Klaus Schwab, through the patronage of the likes of George Soros. So it's this, the elite that has emerged in Europe, it's not in any sense representative of the European peoples. They're just, they're bought and paid for. They do, they, they punch their ticket as they, they're prime minister of this, foreign minister of that. And then afterwards they go on to um, some big bureaucratic job making a, or making a lot of money um, and then maybe getting a cushy professorship somewhere in the United States. So they, this is a, a completely artificial elite. And unfortunately, Europe has been completely swamped by American culture. There isn't really any kind of a European culture anymore. It's all just offshoots of America. And you watch any kind of European TV shows, it's all just replicas of what they do uh, in America. The, the Europeans embrace every American uh, fad. You know, they they embrace um, uh, the uh, George Floyd and taking the knee, Black Lives Matter. They've embraced transgenderism. Anything that the Americans come up with, the Europeans just mindlessly mimic. And of course, now you have this um, uh, politically and, you know, they're destroying their own economies, destroying themselves as any kind of economic force for coming generations. And for what? But but that's it. This is part of this sort of groupthink. Uh, orchestrated by the United States, where there were once European leaders who stood up to the United States, whether it was de Gaulle in the 60s, uh, Willy Brandt uh, in the 70s, even Helmut Kohl to a certain extent in the 1980s, they've gone. They're not there anymore. They're just It's just one kind of um, uh, you know meaningless uh, c- c- creature, you know, like the, the, the fin chick who was there, you know, you know, and they, they all, they're interchangeable. None, none of them really represents uh, any kind of a constituency. I stood outside uh, Willy Brandt House, the headquarters of the SPD in Berlin, just uh, 40 hours ago, George, and I got to thinking uh, quite a bit about him. Uh, in retrospect, uh, a greater, taller man in world affairs than I had perhaps thought at the time. Uh, 
one thing is for sure, from Brandt to Schultz is a long way down. From De Gaulle to Macron is a long way down. Uh, even from Thatcher to uh, Sunak is a long way down, though I didn't have much time for Thatcher. Uh, we could go across the horizon in uh, Europe. Uh, you're a, a political scientist of great note. Um, what's the reason for the decline of our political class? Why did it shrink so? I think they lost any um, connection with their electorates. I think they pursued agendas that were set by others, whether set by um, the World Economic Forum, by uh, George Sarge, above all by uh, the United States. That's what they really cared about. Um, I, you, I mean, you, you, you've made an excellent movie about um, Tony Blair. He's really the model of the new politician, the killing of Tony Blair. In other words, yeah, you do that. You punch your ticket uh, as prime minister, and then you go on to make a huge amount of money uh, serving uh, <laughs> all, all kinds of uh, paymasters. That's that's the European uh, political model today. So when you when you, you know, do your bit in the cabinet and in, uh, in, in foreign ministries, that's just preliminary to your real task, which is to make a ton of money. And uh, and so that that's what Europe is. Europe is now doesn't doesn't exist in Asia. There isn't a European culture. There's no European civilization. It's just an appendage of uh, the United States. That's what, what was so um, really disgraceful about yesterday's um uh, coronation, because of course it was magnificent. And there was, you know, it's a, a, a root, a thousand year history. You know, there was uh, an, an amazing thing that they were celebrating. And yet the United Kingdom is just simply does the bidding of Washington. I mean, there's, there's nothing here that, that just has any relevance to this uh, ancient, uh, magnificent uh, tradition that was being celebrated, because in reality, all of them, all of those Rishi Sunak and um, um, Keir Starmer and the rest of them who were sitting there, they you know they don't represent any kind of an ancient Britain. They represent uh, a political elite that does the bidding of Washington, and whatever Washington will say to them, they will do, irrespective of any uh, national interests uh, of the British people. Doctor George, always a pleasure, a privilege, in fact, to hear you speak. Thanks for joining us on Thank the mother of all talk shows. Should the U.S. Second Amendment on the right to bear arms be repealed? A, yes, B, no. I'm afraid to tell you, no is winning out the park. You better get voting if you think otherwise. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. Sorry if you can't get through on the phone or onto the show at least. Uh, more than 150 people call the show every week, 0808196 uh, We prioritize first-time callers. Uh, so if you are one of those, call now. You never know, you might get on the show. In the US, plus one eight four four nine four four double three double four, And if you're in the rest of the world, 442039662625. We prioritize First-time callers and women callers. If you're a first-time caller and a woman caller, you're almost certain to get on the show. My good friend, 
Tom McGregor is an American in China. Well, there are a surprising number of his compatriots. I discovered for myself when my good wife Gayatri and I recently spent time there and indeed soon will again. Tom McGregor, though, is an outstanding figure. Uh, he's not a figure of the left in American politics. I don't think he'd mind me saying that. He's a conservative man, a Texan. Uh, who uh, has come to know and love China and has become, I think, the best pundit in China. And that's something to be. Tom McGregor joins me now. Tom, thanks for uh, being back uh, on the show. Uh, my condolences to you as a Texan for the uh, horrific events in your state over the last couple of days. Eight shot dead yesterday in a mall seven mown down and killed uh, outside a homeless shelter elsewhere in Texas uh, this evening. Um, so my condolences uh, on that. The U.S. is in a bad way before we turn to China. This is not a good time to be uh, telling everyone they should be like America. That is very correct. Uh, the um America has long been on a decline in the re past few years, perhaps probably for a decade or, or so. And what we're witnessing is an America in decline, while we are also seeing a China on the rise. So a lot of times when empires are on the decline, they are the last to know um, that they are the ones on the decline, because a long time they have gotten used to and accustomed to the the fact that they can see see themselves as an empire and from that they just assume that they can make that last for a long time to come uh but with this decline what's really going on is they are becoming more angry and upset and trying to take more gambles to stay on top and as such they are there's a, a much higher likelihood that you will see much more bullying on the part of the americans towards other countries especially towards Europe. China, of course, doesn't uh, take uh, bullying. Um, as uh, mm -hmm. Deng Xiaoping said to uh, the then Prince Charles, the days when China took orders from foreigners are long gone. Uh, and yet they're still always trying to give China orders. Only the other day, uh, an American uh, official, senior official, uh, demanded that uh, that Russia order uh, that China tell Russia to get out of Ukraine all the while shuffling more and more weapons into Taiwan uh, where you yourself uh, were visiting just last week um, yeah. so the Chinese yeah. people and their leadership uh, how unkindly do they take it to be lectured by foreigners in this way well, it's been it's been long accustomed by many of, of the U.S. government to constantly uh, lecture other countries on what they should do according to America's perspective of uh, global governance. It's just been a long custom. And and of course, obviously, the uh, uh, U.S. government side has often told China what to do and China uh, uh, Here's what is being said by the U.S. government, but doesn't exactly always follow what the U.S. government says. So let's say, for example, in regard. Uh, yes, I did visit Taiwan and it was a very interesting experience for me. 
But what was interesting was I discovered a lot of differences in Taiwan than what I'm seeing in the international and Western media. What I often see in the international Western media is this sensationalism and these claims that China is going to have an imminent invasion on Taiwan and that war is soon going to happen. I mean, this is a constant theme that you'll see in the international media, especially in regards to Taiwan. But when I visited Taiwan, what really shocked me was the simple fact that most people are not worried about this sensationalism, that they were relatively calm, that they anticipate and believe that they can have peace with China. Okay, so with, with, them, with, with the U.S. sending weapons to Taiwan, this has always been the case that they've always sent a lot of weapons. But if you take a closer look at the quality of those weapons that have been sent to Taiwan, they weren't, weren't exactly very good or high quality weapons. They weren't always very, they, a lot of times those weapons the U.S. sent weren't really working. A lot of times it's just a show to make it look like the U.S. is really helping Taiwan. But for those who know, those who are experts know that a lot of those weapons being sent were not high quality and often they were not even working. Okay, so a lot of this is just a show. In regards to telling uh, China that, that they're asking Russia to get out of Ukraine, well, there's no surprise there. Well, it looks like uh, Ukraine is losing, and that is different than what the Americans and the Western media have been claiming, which is Ukraine is winning. If they are begging for Russia to leave Ukraine and trying to get China to help to persuade Russia to leave Ukraine, to me, that shows Ukraine is losing not winning. What did the Taiwan people think uh, about visits from Nancy Pelosi and a succession of, of grandees from the United States? Did they, did they not see that as provocative behavior on the US? After all, well, the easiest way to guarantee a Chinese uh, recapture of the island is to persuade the Chinese that the Americans are going to make it impossible ever for Taiwan to return to the motherland. Well, that's also a very interesting analysis uh, and something we need to really explore that I had trouble understanding actually until I went to Taiwan and got to meet pe people there who are just who live on the island their entire lives. And another surprise that I discovered when I was there was when I talked to many people in Taiwan and asked them about Pelosi's visit or Zai's visit to, to the U.S., I was expecting them to be a little bit excited, maybe emotional, because here uh, the media claims that they really love the USA and they worship the USA. So, of course, they would love Pelosi to visit. But a lot of times when I asked people from Taiwan, what really surprised me was they were like, I don't care. No big deal. Who cares? It's just Pelosi. We weren't really excited when she came. We were more surprised by how the international media was talking about Pelosi's visit. And of course, obviously, China re responded in a very strong way. And that definitely shocked many people from Taiwan. But the overall theme and consensus that I, I heard from many people in Taiwan was they really didn't pay closely attention to the Americans or even the U.S. foreign policy. Uh, Pelosi came, and then suddenly there's all these reporters from all over the world showing up in Taipei, and then they're blowing it up like this is now going to create a war with China and Taiwan. 
when to them, it was just another American showing up, trying to show off. And also when I asked people about Zai's visit to uh, U.S., they were like, oh, it's just a transit visit. She was what's really more important is she went to Belize and then she went to some of their uh, South American friends. They actually thought that her visits to South America was more important than her visit to the United States. Now, Taiwan is officially in recession, uh, whilst Chinese growth is multiplying and going to be, I think, four, if not five times greater than growth in the rest of the the G7. Uh, I think four times greater than the United States. Taiwan is going in the opposite direction. And yet the U.S. is bullying it in relation to its semiconductor uh, industry. What does the U.S. want Taiwan to do? I'm not sure, to be honest, because uh, the economy in Taiwan, as you said, is is disastrous right now. They reported a, over 3.02% drop in its GDP, GDP in the first quarter of this year. And it, it was actually noticeable. I uh, we our, our team, we went down to Kaohsiung. This is the major port city of Taiwan. We were expecting to see this really bustling city that was robust, that was a really happening city. And it was nothing more than a ghost town. We even showed up in Kaohsiung, main station, right next to where their international port is. And we couldn't find any shops that were open. A lot of places were shuttered. It was closed down. It was shocking to us because this is the major port city of Taiwan. And it's a dead zone. It was it was really disturbing. So what it shows to me is that the trade in Taiwan is getting shattered, destroyed. And it's a lot because of the U.S. foreign policy. They have put a lot of restrictions on trade with China. And so now Taiwan is in a very dangerous place economically. And their chips, who knows? Maybe the U.S. wants to control TSMC which is a major manufacturer of semiconductors, because obviously they're not helping TSMC. It's really, it was really quite disturbing as well to, to me. Uh, I, I was hearing stories from people, like for example, I've heard about Micron, they're doing major layoffs in Taiwan in the Asia Pacific region. Uh, they're producing, they're involved with the chips manufacturing. So what exactly does America want? Maybe they want to destroy uh, Taiwan's high-tech sector, so then they can replace them and become and surpass Taiwan as a major high-tech and science manufacturer. But this will not lead to success. By sabotaging your own friends, that creates a lot of mistrust. Now, uh, speaking of happening cities, uh, the last time we met was in the very happening city of Beijing. But the astonishing thing for me, and it had been 25 years uh, since I had been in Beijing, uh, was the the wealth of the people. I was in a high street in which, I'm not exaggerating, a million people were there. There was a queue a mile long to get into every shop just to get into the shop. Uh, to spend the money that the people uh, quite evidently had. There's even a Manchester United superstore on that street. Uh, and uh, and I, I spent a few 
shillings in there. Um, this incredible burgeoning of China, um, people on the whole must be glad that they are in China. Why don't the Taiwan people see that? Are they kept from that knowledge? Do they know that while they're in recession, China is booming? How do you keep them down on the Taiwan farm uh, when Paris is just across the straits? Sure. Well, that's also a good question. I think basically what you have is a society in Taiwan. Uh, you have people there who've grown up in their society, and they have long been told that China is this terrible and evil country, and that if they try to draw closer and, and have closer relations with China, then their lives will be miserable because then they'll be under the control of the Chinese government. So there is this constant prevailing sentiment that in Taiwan, no matter what happens, don't, don't go politically closer to China. Now, they can have business deals, but they separate the business from their politics. So that being said, basically, you have a media, you have schools, you have education, you have an entire system in place where the Taiwan people are basically informed and told that they must side with the U.S. over China on everything related to political and diplomatic issues. So even though the Chinese economy is doing much stronger, they always end up looking at that with suspicion. But what I anticipate eventually is this economy in Taiwan really is crashing. And if they don't see it now, what, you're, what, you saw, what I saw in Kaohsiung is going to happen all over the island if they really follow up on what the U.S. is doing to them. And, China, and so by that being said, eventually, if there is a major downturn in the economy and many people lose jobs and many people go poor, they may soon discover that China is not as bad as they thought it was. And they may actually want to improve ties and improve trade because that would make a better situation for them. So the, the fact is, is the society of Taiwan is strongly anti-China. It's been that way for many decades, and it just is, and you can't really change that mindset. But what can't, what could happen is if there's a major crash in the local economy, they may discover that it's the Chinese and not the Americans who rescue them. I think it was Dr. Kissinger who said being an enemy of the United States can be dangerous. Being a friend of the United States can be fatal as many have found out from the Shah of Persia through the leaders of Afghanistan, and who knows, one day soon, uh, the leaders of Ukraine and Taiwan. Tom McGregor, as always, a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks for getting up so early in the morning to be on the mother of all talk shows. So now 12,000 people have voted on the poll, uh, and it's not looking good for the anti-gun lobby. Uh, which is on 38, 37, 37, and 31, whilst those who wish the Second Amendment to remain sacrosanct are on 62, 63, 63, and 69. Let me take a quick break, and I'll be right back with your calls. Stay tuned. 
You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. A big and sincere thank you to my new patrons, James Halpin, Stephanie Caro, Michael Sherry, and Sereno. And messages from my patrons, uh, guess again, says new member here in Alabama. My country has been taken over by idiots. Love the show, the truth, and your unique sense of humor. Best wishes on the continued success of the mother of all talk shows. Sincerely, John and Karen Guess. Thank you, John and Karen. James Lenahan, a year-long patron, says banks in the U.S. keep going down, but one of the reasons may be surprising or maybe not. Short sellers are shorting the stocks of financially stable banks, cashing in on people's fear of a major bank crash. The Financial Times reported that hedge funds have made $7 billion in the recent crisis. I recommend the newsletter Wall Street on Parade for more details. The world needs some giant hedge cutters. And Andy, another new patron, says free Gonzalo Lira on the Russian people saving of all humanity in 1945. History is written and cannot be rewritten, no matter how hard they try. And Monya Spurl says, George, please help putting pressure against the arrest of Gonzalo Lira. The case needs a lot of public attention, and you are an important and well-known voice in the world of truth and justice. And Graham Briggs-White, a moats legend, Graham, thank you for that, says, on the poll, I would have said yes years ago, but corporations are too dangerous now. With all that has happened, were Radovan Karadzic and Slobodan Milosevic such war criminals after all? And uh, someone, my grandson actually, Sean, says, uh, gives me a picture of Bakhmut on fire two hours ago. I think they intend to uh, finish the Bakhmut uh, fight in time for Victory Day on Wednesday. Um, now, uh, Ryan is on the line in Doha, in Qatar, on the Second Amendment. Go ahead, Ryan. How you doing, George? Uh, just first of all, congratulations on Celtic winning the league title today. I know you'll be a happy man. Hell, hell. Hell, yeah. hell. And so, by a um, country mile. I buy a country that's leaving close anymore. It's embarrassing for the other side. <laughs> We need into well, the, anyway, the Brit- a British. We need a British Premiership, Ryan. It's the only answer to this. We can't keep having a one-horse race and sustain the interest. Do you know I mean? Seeing teams like Bournemouth in the Premier League don't take any fans. Imagine Celtic and Rangers in that league. They take about ten thousand everywhere. Exactly. I've been I've been fighting for that for twenty years. Anyway, go on. <laughs> we'll be boring the viewers. Well, <laughs> I, we will be. We will be. I just like. Obviously, like, as a sort of fellow journalist, you kind of look back and sort of fall of America over the last sort of decade. Not in, in horror, in a sense. Like, this year so far, there have been 160 mass shootings already. And you're talking the yeah. start of May here. It's just unbelievable. Yeah. And now, I know you were saying earlier that you wouldn't ban the Second Amendment. Now, I'm not for the Second Amendment, but I get your point that you raise in the sense of you'd be fearful of living in that country with the particular rates yeah. of crime, etc. But the right exactly. to bear arms now, obviously that was written by the founding fathers, etc. But it's me- metamorphosized into something now 
that is just beyond the realms of control of anyone. Like the idea that the founding fathers meant that someone in the street could own an AK-47 and go into a school or a synagogue or a public office or a federal building and just mass down everyone that they find was not what they meant. So we're at a sort of road here that obviously there's too much gun ownership in America for them to try and take the guns off everyone. It's just not going to happen. It's just never, ever going to happen. So the government's sort of a choice well, here. Well, uh, I, I, I think... Uh, you, you, well, you've summed it up uh, perfectly uh, that uh, it is inconceivable that the... Uh, I think the last figure I saw was the 150 million gun owners in the United States are going to hand over their weapons. And even if they did... Uh, the millions of criminal elements who are armed to the teeth. And by the way, an AK-47 would be a blessing. Uh, we're talking about people with automatic uh, rifles far more powerful than an AK-47. The one who murdered eight people in a mall uh, yesterday uh, was equipped with a fearsome uh, AR uh, that uh, was firing multiple uh, rounds per second. Uh, these uh, weapons are absolutely deadly. But what we're going to do about it, Ryan, how can anybody do anything about it? And if you were living there well, in all these circumstances, you would not give up your mm -hmm. weapons. I wouldn't give up my no, weapons that, where I live, never mind in the United that, States. <laughs> that's very true. I mean, I've got family in California, for example, that are staunchly Democrats, so they're anti-Trump, like to the max. But on the flip side of that, the crime rates in the areas that they live in, which is just outside San Francisco, have increased about five to six fold over the last two years or so. Now, they live in an area where there's a Walmart, obviously, like on every street corner. But it's got to the point now that if anyone goes into the stores and steals anything, I think, below the value of $800, the police aren't even phoned anymore. So they've actually had to legally obtain a weapon because they cannot take the risk of home invasion and in what used to be a very, very safe neighbourhood. Now, they argue that, and they are my family members and I love them, but they're wrong in this, that like, Trump is the antichrist of everything that ever goes wrong in America. Now, I would argue that things are going wrong, wrong in America long before Donald Trump ever took the presidency. It's been going wrong for a very, very, uh, very absolutely. long time. Absolutely, and, 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 and long after he ceased to be the, the president. Uh, Donald Trump was a symptom of what was wrong with America, not the cause of what was wrong uh, in America. And San Francisco, uh, when I was first there, was a heavenly place, albeit very cold, as Mark Twain said, the... Uh, the coldest winter I ever experienced was summer in San Francisco. Uh, it was a heavenly place. I mean, older viewers will remember when it was the, the city of love, hippies, uh, flowers in the hair and all that. It's now hell on earth in San Francisco. The United States is in a societal, cultural, economic and political crisis. Uh, and they displace their activity by making war uh, with very big guns indeed uh, overseas. Um, but the, the reality is, if you live there, as your relatives do, and, uh, and of course uh, 300 million people do, uh, you're not going to give up your weapons because that will just make you 
even more unsafe than you already feel. Ryan, thanks for a great call from Doha. Uh, David is in Folkestone in England on the Ukraine. Go ahead, David. Hello, George. Uh, first time caller. Yes. A long time visit. Welcome. Uh, yeah. Thank um, you. Thank you. I'm calling about your interview with uh, George Samueli and uh, yeah. what he said. It's because uh, for a long time I have uh, been a, a viewer of uh, Paul Craig Roberts. Do you know Paul Craig Roberts? I do, the American. Yes. Well, yes. for years, for years now, he has been saying in his blog that uh, Putin has been doing this all wrong. He has sat back and watched what has been happening in Ukraine sneak up on him, and he couldn't figure out why he was doing this. And lo and behold, we saw what happened. In the, the last uh, yes. since two thousand and fourteen. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. obviously, Russian policy is the is the prerogative of the Russians, and I'm not there. I don't have insight into the mind of Putin. But the way I put it, and I have done so before, is if I was uh, the leader of Russia, I would have done this in twenty fourteen. Uh, when uh, the NATO penetration and arming of Ukraine would have been at a lesser pitch, when it would have been more obviously uh, caused by the violent, illegal overthrow of the government, the president and the parliament in Kiev by a violent mob uh, openly coordinated by uh, the European Union and the United States. Uh, I would have uh, annexed uh, the eastern part of Ukraine, where overwhelmingly the people are Russian-speaking people uh, who look to Russia rather than look to the West. Uh, I would have done that in 2014. It may be that Russia did not feel able to do it. It may be that Russia was compromised by uh, Western orientation that will never come back, but which was there until a year and a bit ago. Uh, they did not want to burn all their bridges uh, with the West, as it's described, uh, bridges which are now entirely burned and forever in any case, uh, or in the case of the pipelines, uh, blown up uh, to smithereens. I don't know why uh, the Russians did not do that at that time. I would have myself uh, counseled them to do so, uh, but they didn't, and we are where we are. And uh, the question I asked George is uh, in that Shakespeare quote I gave, uh, steeped in blood so far, uh, they have to ask themselves whether it's bloodier to go on or go back. And if it's, uh, it's not really possible to go back now, and so they must go on. And uh, if they must go on, uh, perhaps they must go on in a different way. That's the point that George was making, uh, with which uh, many people in Russia uh, will concur. David, thanks. Uh, excellent call for your first time. Don't be a stranger. Call back again. Now, we have a legend on the line. It's Norma in Bristol, without whom no show is complete. The lovely 
Norma, now loved throughout the world as the legend of the mother of all talk shows. Go ahead, Norma. Hello, George. I just wanted to make a couple of points about the coronation. Um, earlier, like you delivered the explanation about why Charles is not morally fit to be the guy, the king. Um, mm-hmm. And you did refer to his riches just now, but I was having a chat with my grandchildren this afternoon, and uh, we were talking about, I said, the many exemptions that the king doesn't have to pay, hereditary tax in the royal family, and that's so wrong. And But when then, in actual fact, my daughter, granddaughter said, well, Rishi Sunat's wife didn't pay his taxes. The point of this is, really, we can get rid of the prime minister at the election, but, like, the king's here to stay. And these conversations are very good to have because they don't think like that, you know? They've loved all the stuff that's been going on, um, which I have found a bit, oh, not too good. But it's, it's just having the conversations with the younger people and pointing out a few things that they never think about. Well, that's true. Uh, And uh, many of the emotions that we've seen in Britain over the last uh, couple of days are not uh, ignoble ones. Uh, They are born of patriotism and uh, healthy patriotism, a love of one's country, its physical attributes, and above all, its people, and their record of achievement is a good thing. I feel it myself. It's one of the reasons why I fought for Britain to be an independent country, independent of the European Union. It's one of the reasons why I oppose its breakup into tiny constituent parts. I want uh, Britain to be great. I won't say Britain to be great again, for the mass of the people, it's never been great. But Britain is something. It has, uh, to use a Frenchism, je ne sais quoi. It has contributed uh, to the world way out of proportion to its size and the size of its population and its geographic isolation, relatively speaking, uh, from the American continent, from the European mainland, and so on, we have produced many great things, particularly in the cultural field, from from Shakespeare to John Lennon and beyond, to Elvis Costello and beyond. And before anyone tells me Elvis is Irish, yeah, his parents were Irish. He was born in England. Uh, And uh, of course, if I had more time, I'd I'd list those cultural achievements. I found Robert Burns' quotes all over East Germany, all over, on statues, on plaques, uh, in the minds of people. Uh, Quotes from the national poet of my small part of Britain, uh, whose words traveled not only across the oceans but across the ideological divines and have been kept and engraved on on marble and so on. We have made a huge cultural contribution. We have made a huge uh, industrial and manufacturing uh, contribution. 
our inventions, our legend, many of them too from Scottish people uh, in Britain. And, uh, and so it is not a bad thing to love your country and love its people and love its good things, its achievements. And many people over the long reign of Queen Elizabeth uh, began to associate the country with the monarch uh, in an obvious and direct way. But that era is over now. The Queen wouldn't have run around with Jimmy Savile. The Queen wouldn't have run around with Klaus Schwab. The Queen wouldn't have adopted one harmful fad after another, uh, from net zero to eating insects. The Queen would not have wished upon her uh, people uh, the future of globalized capitalism that Schwab and his mob have in mind. The Queen wouldn't have done that, but Charles has done it and has no intention, I promise you, of giving it up. Not at all. So that and the brilliance of the British at such great glittering civil uh, occasions as that uh, made a lot of people happy yesterday. And as I said, it was not my wish really to rain on their parade. But I do have a duty to warn everyone that uh, all is not right with King Charles III and his household. And if Jesus had been there yesterday, I believe he would have kicked over the tables outside the abbey. I believe that all of it was based on state worship of a man unworthy of worship. It was idolatrous. It was against the interests of the people of Britain. And speaking truth in the court of the Sultan or the King is a great privilege to be able to do. I did it in the United States Senate almost exactly uh, 15, 18 years ago, however many it was. I know the anniversary uh, is imminent. And uh, I tried to do it in the British Parliament for nearly 30 years. Nowadays, I do it to a bigger and more educated and intelligent audience, namely you. And I'm very grateful for your presence with me tonight. Uh, God willing, I'll be back on Wednesday at the slightly later time of 9 p.m. UK. Now I've got to go and find out how Manchester United got on. It didn't look great when I looked at the score during one of these breaks. But Celtic won the league. Hail, hail. Thanks very much for being with me. See you on Wednesday and bring another viewer with you. Why don't you? Have a good night.